The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. I want to thank all of you for listening with us today. I'm very glad that you have joined us. I want to thank you also for liking our Spirit of Recovery Facebook page. It is great to see that and to get new likes every week. And also, I want to thank you for sending me your emails, for letting me know how things are going for you in your recovery and your spirituality walk. I want to thank you for participating here with Spirit of Recovery. Thank you also for letting your friends and the people in your recovery community, your unity community, and your other spiritual communities know about us here on Spirit of Recovery. It's great to be broadcasting on the topic of recovery and spirituality on UnityOnlineRadio.org. I love hearing from you, and I love knowing that what I'm doing here on Spirit of Recovery is making a real difference. Um, I've just got great guests. I feel very blessed. Higher Power brings them to me in amazing ways, and... I'm so delighted about that and grateful to be able to bring these folks to you so that they can share with you uh, what they know from their vast experience. Every week we do talk about topics that are important to the recovery community with guests who are down-to-earth, knowledgeable, and innovative. My guests are always people who are either in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people. And they're bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. You can listen to Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. You can listen uh, via your smart device. You can listen, of course, via your computer. You can go to Stitcher.com. You can um, listen live. You can listen to our archives. We've got lots of great archives. You can go to UnityOnlineRadio.org slash program slash Spirit of Recovery and just find great, great uh, information on there, wonderful guests for many years' worth. So you can uh, tune in in a variety of ways, whatever is going to work for you. I want you to know that the spirit of recovery is a welcoming place. And so if you're a person in recovery from any kind of an addiction or if you're a family member that's in your own recovery as a family member or friend or 
Uh, perhaps you are or you aren't in recovery yourself as a family member or friend, or maybe your loved one is or isn't in recovery from substance or process behavioral addiction. But whether or not you're in recovery, or maybe you're just curious about the process of recovery and addiction, I am glad you're here and you are welcome. Maybe you just want to learn a little bit more about what recovery is and how that's part of, part of life for many people. And uh, you're welcome. You're welcome to participate in our discussions, to email or call in a comment or a question for my guest on the topic of the day. I also want you to know that if you feel so moved to financially support uh, Spirit of Recovery and the other great programs you hear on Unity Online Radio, you can do that. UnityOnlineRadio.org is a nonprofit, and so uh, your donations are helpful and appreciated. And so, if you would, if you feel so moved to financially support UnityOnlineRadio.org and its many great programs, you can do that. You can make a one-time gift or a recurring contribution. Simply text Unity Radio to seven two seven two seven from your smartphone, and you can be a part of the financial support of this wonderful radio station. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity minister and an addictions counselor. Also, I'm a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people with the disease of addiction. And so 34 years ago, those relationships were a catalyst that got me started on an active path of personal growth and spiritual development. And it's when I still walk in the integration of the unity principles and the recovery principles and those fellowships um, create a wonderful place in my life that is of transformation and keeping me growing. So I am very grateful to have the opportunity to share with you these ideas about recovery and spirituality and to hear what's happening for you in your world. Our topic today is the tried and true and what's new, recovery in the 21st century. You know, there have been uh, significant advances in brain science and uh, there have also just been the, the reaffirmation of, I think, what everybody in the recovery process knows intuitively is the healing power of support networks and everything in between. There's been a lot of advances in the 21st century in um, understanding addiction and in treating addiction and in the re, uh, approaches to the recovery process. And uh, so today my guest is Scott McMillan, and he's going to be sharing with us his experiences as uh, and seeing all these changes and what's, what is tried and true and what is new as we move into, well now, into the 21st century, into the recovery um, community and the treatment community and what's happening. Scott has vast experience. He is a principal at Recovery Systems Institute, and he's going to be sharing with us today how the treatment and recovery field are evolving in policy and in practice and in what that means for individuals and families that are seeking recovery and that are in recovery. Scott has created and operated successful addiction treatment programs for more than 30 years. His pioneering work in the treatment of addictions as chronic disorders has influenced many organizations. He has co-authored seven books and numerous articles and provided training to government, higher education, and to the private sector. And he's also assisted many families in successful intervention with loved ones. And Scott's personal goal is to help programs achieve the best clinical outcomes in the most cost-effective manner. So Scott uh, does and has worked both with individuals with families and certainly with the treatment providers at all levels. And um, 
You can learn more about his work at www.treatmentandrecoverysystems.com and it is just looks just how it's spelled, treatmentandrecoverysystems.com. So Scott McMillan, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Happy to be here. So glad you're here today. So you, as we said, you have been very involved um, in the treatment field and in providing uh, direct care and, and working uh, with training and so forth and uh, establishing programs and running programs and so forth for over 30 years. So you've been on the inside looking and seeing and engaged in what's happening. Tell us if you could just summarize uh, to start off with what's, what's different about recovery today than it was when you got going over 30 years ago? Well, well, that's what we call a really large question, but uh, if I had to pick one thing, if, if you held a gun to my head and made me select one thing that's changed, it's that when I got into the field a number of years ago, our focus was very much on the front end of treatment, uh, medical detoxification, social model detox, followed by two or four or six-week programs, and that was very helpful because it got a lot of people into the treatment system who otherwise wouldn't have been there. But now, over the years, our focus has shifted much more towards the farther end of treatment, towards relapse prevention and prevention of recidivism into treatment, uh, breaking the revolving door cycle that so many of us have seen in, in addicts that we know, and creating better long-term outcomes uh, than we had uh, 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, um, there's actually good research that shows what things make, the dip, make a difference in the longer-term outcomes. A lot of it was done by various researchers and summarized by a fellow named George Valent, who's a very well-known psychiatrist who was also on the advisory board of AA for a number of years. And Valent's specialty is to look at long-term studies, the kind that go on for years and years and years and show you what he calls a natural history of recovery. And he looked in one of his articles, you can find this on the Internet, it's uh, just uh, look under Valent, V-A-I-L-L-A-N-T, and uh, long-term recovery, and you'll find one of the studies has to do with uh, what happens to people years after they first get into treatment. And what he discovered was it has very, that long-term outcomes have very little to do with what started treatment, whether somebody was in treatment for a month or three months or a year. It has much more to do with other factors after they leave. Uh, for example, uh, involvement in a, uh, a self-help fellowship. That greatly increases your, like, for example, a 12-step group, greatly increases chances of recovery, but so does involvement in some other kind of spiritual support. A lot of people recover through uh, their churches. Uh, now that churches are, are more aware of, of the recovering issue and more accepting of it, um, lots of folks uh, benefit from developing new relationships, either within a 12-step fellowship or somewhere else, which are positive, which are not so tied up with the past. They don't have to be intimate relationships, but supportive relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do very well if they can find a kind of productive work that they haven't been able to find before. Uh, so that makes employment and structured self-support important aspects of long-term outcomes. Um, 
there's some very interesting work that was done by uh, a friend of mine and a number of other people, but a fellow named Anand Mahendali, who's a neurologist and addictionologist in Texas, on how much difference it makes if you have systematic monitoring through the first years of recovery. Uh, he works with physicians and physician recovery programs uh, where, uh, you know, they go through a 30-day program and then they um, are monitored by a physician committee, you know, mostly made up of recovering docs themselves uh, for three, four, five years. The monitoring is uh, a fairly systematic process where they call in and they report and they answer certain questions and things like that. They're getting 80% plus recovery rate. So when I talk about recovery there, they measure it as no relapses at all over five years. So mm -hmm. that gives us a clue that just having somebody watch closely, especially if that person is, is educated and, and knowledgeable about addictions rather than just, you know, somebody who, a probation officer with a caseload of 200, but actually monitors closely, you see tremendous increases in outcomes. And that reinforces the view that we really should take a long-term perspective on recovery rather than thinking of it in terms of a, a single treatment or a single treatment episode. Uh, we should think of it in terms of a continuum of services delivered over a number of years, uh, individualized to the person. Uh, in other words, it's not the same for everybody. I mean, I quit smoking, but it would never occur to me that all the millions of others who quit smoking did it the same way I did. So there's some level of individualization required to improve uh, long-term success in recovery. And these are all valuable insights rooted in good research, good, well-conducted research uh, that we can rely on in making decisions about uh, policy and planning for addiction treatment. Right. That's wonderful. What do you attribute this uh, change to in the from the perspective of treatment providers, and um, obviously research has been done, but why is this focus now more on the long term when it used to be more on let's get them into the 30 days and call it good? Well, uh, failure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but um, when I first got into the field, we were so excited to be able to even have alcoholism programs or addiction programs, treatment programs. Mm -hmm. um, we we had them in hospitals. Hospitals before spent most of their time trying to get the addicts away from the hospital. Now, all of a sudden, we were having these uh, opportunity to intervene, and we we could see patients getting better. It was really remarkable how fast people improved. So I think it's probably we were so impressed with the results we got in the short term that we assumed they would continue in the long term just because it we were so wonderful, and in fact, uh, they didn't. And as I'm sure you've observed, many people went through treatment programs, very good treatment programs, got a lot of benefit out of it, but still relapsed. Right. That's what Valent uh, discovered, and he concluded through the review of those long-term studies, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, that relapse is not really about making a bad choice. It's not really intentional. It's something that appears to happen as a product of the disease in the way, uh, and I'm going to stretch a comparison here, 
that uh, continued fluctuations and problems with diabetes happen in the course of a lifetime of a diabetic. And there's only a limited amount of control that people have over that. So what we had to do was rearrange our thinking to focus more on what can we do to support them after they leave rather than hitting hard while we have them in the residential program. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, that was really a, a, an advance, but it took a long time because um, uh, I think people just wanted people struggled with the idea that they put so much into the front end. Why wasn't it working? But they were starting to get discouraged and thinking treatment was a failure. It isn't mm-hmm. really failing in the way that a lot of people think. I'll give you an example. I was on a television program with a young man who was being held up as an example of a young adult recovery. He was like 22 or something. And and we were waiting in the green room to go on TV and I was going to be the expert and he was going to be the, you know, example of success. And I looked over at him and said, uh, so where'd you go to treatment? And he looked at me and said, well, which time? Mm -hmm. And he, he explained that, excuse me, the first time, he went to an outpatient program following his family's intervention, um, did very well for about six or eight weeks and then fell flat on his face, went to an inpatient program, again, with family support, did very well for probably, oh, I guess three or four months after leaving the program. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I seem to be uh, coughing a little today. And uh, fell flat on his face once again, then went away for about three months to a program, uh, got mad and left against uh, medical advice and uh, started using again the same day he left, I believe. And then after six or seven weeks of carousing and getting himself in a, a position of absolute misery, wound up back in the inpatient outpatient program where he'd started the first time and had been in recovery for two years. Mm-hmm. So how do you measure that? Um, do we count that as a, a failure the first for the first treatment and a success for the last treatment, um, even though they were at the same place? Or do we say he was learning? Mm-hmm. He was learning as he went how to recover. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't sound like that that hard to people who've never been through it, but for somebody who was deeply embedded in addiction, it's the hardest thing they ever did, and may ever do. Right. So, um, if if you look at it in terms of diabetes or bipolar disorder, something along those lines, you think, well, I understand that he's still got the disease. He's the disease is just is just something that's difficult to overcome, whether it's diabetes or bipolar disorder or what have you. But right. with addiction, we have different expectations. Right. Say, Hold on to that thought. It's time for our yeah. first break. Um, my guest is Scott McMillan. He is a principal at Recovery Systems Institute, been involved in the treatment field deeply uh, for over 30 years. And he's sharing with us today what's tried and true and what's new, recovering the 21st century. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. 
Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. In his new book, What If Godzilla Just Wanted a Hug?, Daryl Fuzaro emphasizes the positive effects of applying unity principles in everyday situations. Laura Harvey, editor of Daily Word magazine, explains Daryl Fuzaro shares his life lessons with inspiring creativity. This book is encouraging, funny, and heartwarming, a combination I highly recommend. As co-host of Unity Online Radio's Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed, Daryl's old-school charm and no-nonsense approach to spirituality keep a global audience laughing and inspired. What if Godzilla just wanted a hug? Is loaded with Daryl's hilarious, award-winning illustrations and packs his wit and wisdom into easy-to-digest, bite-sized stories of how he transforms chaos into tranquility and succeeds in the entertainment business by doing the opposite of everyone else. What if Godzilla just wanted a hug is a pocket Bible encouraging the talented and timid to trust their gut, act on their intuition, and step out boldly. Even if you just bought it for the chapter titles and Daryl Fuzaro's illustrations alone, you'd be getting more than your money's worth with this book. Author and film critic Sister Rose Picotti says spending time with Fuzaro's stories will leave you no choice but to smile and carry on. Oh, he forgot to mention he hangs out with a group of nuns, but then if he had, it would have necessitated a change to some of his more colorful adjectives. Have fun ordering your copy of What If Godzilla Just Wanted a Hug today on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. And our topic today is the tried and true and what's new, recovery in the 21st century. My guest is Scott McMillan. Scott is a principal at Recovery Systems Institute, and he's sharing with us today how the treatment and recovery field are evolving and what that means for individuals and families that are seeking recovery. Scott has created and operated successful addiction treatment programs for more than 30 years. He's the co-author of many books and he has also provided training for uh, government organizations for higher education in the private sector and has, uh, in addition, 
done a lot of direct service, assisting many families in successful interventions with their loved ones. And uh, so he's sharing with us some great insights into the recovery process and how it has changed over time. Some of it's the same as it was, those foundational principles, and there's some exciting new aspects to it. Before I get back to my conversation with Scott, I'd invite you to join me for a brief moment of meditation, making that conscious contact with your higher power as you understand it in the Serenity Minute. So I invite you to relax, to feel that presence of your higher power throughout your whole body temple, simply allowing yourself to relax from the crown of your head all the way through your body temple. Allow your mind to relax. Allow the thoughts to simply drift to the edges of your awareness. And share with me this constructive idea. Wholeness is always within me. And it expresses in ever greater, ever more powerful ways. Wholeness and well-being is always within me. And it expresses in ever greater and ever more powerful ways. And now let's take a moment in the quiet. Thank you, friends, for joining me in the Serenity Minute, and I trust that that was an opportunity for you to make conscious contact with your higher power. And now we're back to our topic of the day, the tried and true and what's new recovery in the 21st century and my with my guest, Scott McMillan. And you can uh, learn more about Scott's work if you go to www.treatmentandrecoverysystems.com. So, Scott, uh, you were talking with us here in the first part of our program about uh, the outcomes of recovery and about uh, how important it is to understand addiction as a chronic disease and it needs ongoing support. There's been some um, articles recently, but they're, they're, they're always kind of around, that uh, an, a recent article a couple months ago or a month ago really saying basically, eh, not very effective, treatment doesn't work, whatever. What do you have to say to that? Well, I I, I get those articles in the, in the email a lot from other people who send them to me asking that pretty much same question. Um, generally, I think they're slanted, um, often towards a personal bias of the individual who wrote them. Maybe the the author or the author's loved one. Um, went through treatment and it didn't work or um, managed to to get well using a different method uh, and gathers up a lot of supporting evidence to suggest that nobody gets better uh, through treatment and, say, for example, 12-step recovery. And that's kind of silly. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners probably know hundreds of people who have done very well uh, in conventional treatment and um, 12-step recovery and its uh, comparable organizations. And uh, you can't just dismiss those. That's not science. 
Um, I think personal bias influences the writers, the critics of AA and NA, etc., as much as they accuse uh, people who got sober in AA of being uh, uh, too doctrinaire about the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. Uh, We all are vulnerable to our confirmation bias. That's the correct psychological term. We we tend to see things the way we experience them, and that's not necessarily um, the way it actually happens. Uh, A lot of people would be surprised to know, you know, uh, Narcotics Anonymous has grown phenomenally in the the last 10 years. I mean, way outstripping the other uh, self-help fellowships, and that's worldwide. And most amazingly, uh, the country where it's grown fastest is Iran. Hmm. And hardly anyone would have picked Iran as a country where uh, a 12-step program would have blossomed like that, but it did. Hmm. What do you attribute are, that to? What do you attribute that to? The, the well, general need. <laughs> there are a lot of peop- opioid addicts, people right. struggling with opioid addiction in Iran, and there aren't a lot of resources. So as was true here in the United States back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, um, people went to the grassroots organizations like AA and NA and and Al-Anon. That was before the churches got widely supportive of recovery. Uh, That was when uh, it was still heavily stigmatized and anonymity was perhaps more important than it is now. Um, and grassroots fellowships, of which the 12-step movements are an example, uh, they're, they're not invented by professionals, they're not designed in laboratories, they're not scientific. They tend to operate because they worked, and they met a need, and that need is still there. Uh, I can tell you any cardiologist or endocrinologist that I know would give his left arm for the advantages of a, of a ubiquitous, um, free, 24-hour support fellowship for his or her patients. But we don't have those in other diseases. Uh, they developed in AA and NA um, in part because it was stigmatized, because conventional medicine was so inadequate to the task. Um, and uh, we've learned a whole lot from them over the years, and we'll continue to learn. Uh, there's a wonderful um, research project by, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the researcher. I think it's Maria Pagano, but don't quote me on that. Um, she's, I believe, at Case Western in Cleveland on the tremendous benefit of being an AA sponsor, of helping others. And she's called it the helper principle in her research. Uh, and it works in other chronic diseases like tuberculosis, where by helping someone else, um, you benefit. Uh, you, the the patient, you benefit from it. Uh, this, this should sound familiar. For uh, sure. But she's got actual good research to, to demonstrate the value of it. So the, the self-help model is really a helping others model. Mm-hmm. And I think is uh, something that medicine as a field is learning from. Psychiatry, uh, the big focus now in psychiatry and mental health is recovery. It used to be on the illness. Now it's on the, well, on the, on the recovery from the illness. Well, where do you think they got that? 
Mm-hmm. So, in a way, the professionals are learning from the non-professionals who have fought their way into recovery um, in a variety of ways using uh, what's essentially a spiritual program and, uh, and learn from it. And now we learn from them. Right. Yeah, that's wonderful. What about all the brain research? How do you see that as uh, see that as something new or something uh, old in a way uh, in recovery? Obviously, there's so much good research co- going on in the brain and addiction in well, the last many yeah, years. When studying the brain, and I study the brain a lot, um, you have to remember that almost everything we know about how the brain works, about its internal processes, its dynamics, we've learned in the last 80 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's nothing in human history. Uh, before that, we had to treat the brain like a black box to which we had no key. And what brain science has done, beginning back in the, you know, almost around the same time as AA, to be honest with you, in the 1930s, um, is this explosive growth and new information that is completely changing our perspective on how we make decisions, how we manage emotions, and we're beginning to look inside the brain uh, through tools such as functional magnetic resonance imaging um, to see what is actually happening electronically and chemically uh, when we make a decision, for example, or learn something new, or become addicted. Um, what is actually happening in the brain? I, I, a couple things, if your listeners are interested in looking it up, uh, look up uh, Delta Phos B or CREB. Those are two transcription factors that could very well represent what's called an addiction switch. The thing that turns on the addiction, and once it's turned on, makes it extremely difficult to turn off. Um, that's one very promising um, hypothesis uh, that's being researched at the moment um, to explain one of the great mysteries of addiction, which is why even long after the addict stops using the substance, uh, if he or she picks it up again, we see a quick return of the same kind of problems as we saw before. And that's a mystery. It shouldn't happen. And yet it does. And we it's one of the reasons we call it a disease. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you see the spirituality as uh, factoring into this, Scott? Because on the one hand, we've got this hard science. As you say, we're making rapid advances and very concrete information about the brain. And on the other hand, we have spirituality, which might seem for some like, a, in a sense, like a black box. Like, what in the world are we talking about? Do you see those as fitting together or not? Well, sure, but I see it probably a little differently than some. Okay. So this is just my opinion. To me, I ask myself, when somebody is finally ready for treatment after possibly years or maybe even decades of denial and resistance to it, um, and they commit to some kind of attempt at sobriety or, or abstinence, Um, they look back over their history and there's literally no evidence for them that they can do it because they made a thousand promises and broken them. Uh, 
and made previous attempts and maybe been unsuccessful, uh, as so many are. So what is it that allows them to think that, you know, this time, among all the other times, it's going to work? And the answer is faith. Um, It's not rational. And the faith can't be in yourself because, well, what's been addicted? Your brain. The thing you use to make decisions or the thing that is you, and that's why you can't have a brain transplant. You go with the brain. The thing that is you is the thing that's sick, that's been disturbed in this particular way in your relationship with the substance or with the behavior such as compulsive gambling. So you have to look outside yourself. You need faith. You put those together. Um, where do you find that in society? You find that in spirituality. Now, I don't have any idea which kind of spirituality any individual sitting in a chair in front of me should choose. I don't know. Um, I suggest try, try different ones and see what works better for you. I mean, I know people who are diehard atheists who are sober, but they believe in atheism. If that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So, uh, but it's got to be something um, that's outside yourself. And one, and spirituality is one very human way to access that level of faith. It's the old 12-step, you know, I can't do it. Maybe God can. Um. That's the way Father Martin said it, and I've never really actually come up with a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense, as you say, that uh, it, that's the, par- the paradox, isn't it? It's the brain that's addicted, and, and that's maybe that, that idea, you know, again, back to the 12 steps, but that idea of how you can't really, quote, rely on self in that sense, not that level of self, is you've got to find something else. You gotta find something it, that's not sick. It right, and it's not, and because of the nature of addiction, that means it's not you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing I think for a lot of people is the giving up of dependence on yourself because you've probably, you know, cut off most of your healthy relationships mm-hmm. uh, by that time, and uh, you know, so where do you find? the strength to believe this time that you'll be successful where before you weren't. And it's not in reality because the reality may tell you the exact opposite. Right. Now, when you're talking about relationships there, um, I'm sure from the work that you've done and also from since you got going in this over 30 years ago, you are greatly familiar with the role of the family system in recovery and how do you see that now how has that changed or not changed um over the years the whole idea of the family system well you know again as with addiction um our first focus years ago was on the front end you know we wanted to have a lot of family sessions um we wanted to do a lot of family therapy type activities, mostly multiple groups, uh, thinking that we would create insights and that would be enough to carry the addict and the family into recovery and to make these necessary changes in the family system. And that was naive. 
Um, it's a much longer process addressing much deeper-seated, um, more established patterns of behaviors within family that take a long time to uh, to heal or correct, uh, whichever way you want to see it. Um, it's not something that responds only to education. Um, the family's going to have to experience recovery in the way that the addict is going to have to experience recovery. And at different times, their needs are not going to be congruent, meaning they're not going to need the same thing at the same time. Example, the family may need to express its anger. The addict cannot hear it. In other words, it's too much for the addict's fragile nervous system to manage, um, or vice versa. The addict may need to get a bunch off his chest, which will just cause the family to go back into denial. Mm -hmm. So it requires a longer-term commitment to family counseling and family involvement, which is basically the lesson that Al-Anon and Naran taught um, was uh, um, this is not over. Um, it'll require ongoing changes. It'll require ongoing acceptance. And I think one of the reasons that... Right. Hold on to that thought. It's time for our second break. Um, All right. Stay with us, listeners. Our topic is the tried and true and what's new, recovering the 21st century. My guest is Scott McMillan, a principal at Recovery Systems Institute. Stay with us. We'll be right back and hear some more about what family recovery is all about. Are we nearing the end of the world? Reading the book of Revelation, you might think so, and it doesn't end well. But is it possible that the Bible's darkest story is a positive tale? Author Ed Townley, host of the Unity Online radio show, The Bible Alive, thinks so. A Bible enthusiast, Townley focuses on the metaphysical meanings rather than the literal text. In Kingdom Come, new from Unity Books, Townley takes a fresh approach to Revelation. The kingdom, Townley explains, doesn't await us in the afterlife. It's ours to experience today, as we learn to find the good even in our darkest challenges. Explore Revelation in a new light. Order the book Kingdom Come online today at unitybooks.org. Every moment we live can be holy, and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so. Everything we do can be a prayer, and by using our innate creativity with intention, in every aspect of our lives, that can indeed be true. Author Carla Kincannon wrote, Creativity is so much more than art making. It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time, and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression. Listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet. 
with your host, Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. And now, here's Anna. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, my name is Anna Schaus. I'm your host, and our topic today is the tried and true and what's new, recovery in the 21st century. My guest is Scott McMillan, and uh, Scott has been involved in the treatment uh, field for over 30 years and has uh, given both direct service to clients as well as done a whole lot of um, work in directing programs, creating programs, and doing training for professionals at all levels. And so he's sharing with us what he sees about the what's the same and what's changed over the years in recovery and uh, it just so happens that uh, this month is the 80th anniversary of the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous which certainly was a watershed movement in uh, the recovery uh, community and the recovery process and so um, it's just just a watershed time and we can almost kind of look back and reference these 80 years to see what's happened. So before our break, Scott, you were talking with us about family recovery and what that means now. So tell us about what that means now. And also you've got, got an interesting reference about uh, father and son books looking at uh, two sides of addiction and you want to share some of that with us. But tell us some more about how you see family recovery now. What, that, what does it mean for family to recover? Well, it's a good question and not an easy one to answer, but I think the the point I would emphasize is that it's ongoing. And we've all heard that, but people tend to revert to acting as if somehow it isn't. There's an end point that, uh, beyond which you no longer need to change or adjust or re- require help or support. And in reality, I suspect there isn't. Uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there's no point beyond which you can ever stop worrying about relapse. But it does mean that um, the issues that develop during uh, addiction that affect the family as well as the addict or alcoholic herself um, are indefinite in terms of duration. And they may continue for a long time, particularly where there's been trauma involved, some history of past trauma in the family, um, which uh, needs to be resolved. Um, And it may take a long time to resolve it because uh, at the same time, the addict is healing in a healing process. As one of my my colleagues who was a nurse uh, in recovery said, you know, she was going through adolescence and menopause at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of a uh, uh, a challenge to figure out how much she could handle and how much she really couldn't um, reasonably expect herself to handle and to educate the people around her um, to be as attentive and aware of her limitations as they had been of her of her strengths. So if you if you look at recovery from the family perspective as a lifelong endeavor, um, however long that is, then it's a lot easier to understand um, why you need to continue adapting, continue learning, continue building new skills um, as you go, rather than uh, than all of a sudden being finished. Right. Um, 
good point. I was telling you uh, during the break about a couple of books that really illustrate the challenge of family recovery uh, that were written by a father and son. Some of you may have heard of them. Uh, One was um, a book called Beautiful Boy by uh, David Sheff, who is a journalist. Right. Right. And the other is a book called Tweak by his son, Nick, and what it is, who was an amphetamine addict and then a heroin addict, I think uh, got into treatment when he was 18 and and struggled for several years. The idea is that reading the two books, you can see how enormously affecting it is for both, but in different ways, Mm -hmm. Um, and how communication is so difficult during those periods of uh, struggle with the disorder. Uh, as time passes over the years, and and uh, communication is really something you have to work at. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to families and addicts. So if you haven't read those books, I would suggest reading them. Uh, they're kind of powerful, actually. Um, uh, David Sheff, I believe, actually has a brain hemorrhage in the middle of in the oh middle of the book, and somehow he says at one point he says the neurologist assured him that it wasn't related at all to his son's addiction, and his therapist pointed out he said, "Well, it sure didn't help, did it?" No. So there was a it's it's a wonderful story if if somewhat harrowing of uh, of what they went through and how much it affected everybody rather than just the addict or the alcoholic. Right now, you brought up the concept of trauma, and I know that. Um, uh, at one point in your career, you were um, the director at the Life Healing Center, which does deal with deep trauma. How is trauma related to addiction and recovery? Well, in two ways, and Life Healing Center is a good example of it. Uh, some of the people in treatment have, at, at, at any addiction treatment center, have um, problems that began in childhood neglect or abuse or um, some kind of uh, uh, traumatic experience that has really um, dominated their lives ever since, some kind of unresolved grief um, or something worse, long-term child abuse. And it uh, expresses itself in a bunch of ways, one of which is substance abuse, uh, but it also expresses itself in depression, mood disorders, anxiety, PTSD, uh, self-harm, um, suicidality. Um, it's a very diversiform. That's the technical term for it. And, and that's, that's one type of trauma-related problem. Um, the other type is trauma-related to um, something that happened during the addiction. And as you know, um, a lot of the addicts we're seeing now are younger, 25 or, or under, and have already experienced uh, assault, violence, imprisonment, rape, uh, pretty terrible things just as a result of uh, even a few brief years of addiction. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a separate type of trauma. And we really, it really probably maybe 10 or 15 years ago that programs like the Life Healing Center and others uh, started to to spring up because of a new understanding of how trauma could um, affect uh, behavior as an adult. There's also a large study being conducted now, I believe it's mostly on Kaiser patients, called the ACE or the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which is adding greatly to our knowledge of the impact that 
traumatic experiences can have on um, substance use as well as other forms of, of mental health problems. So um, good, good programs now use what we call trauma-informed methods. Those are certain evidence-based practices that are specifically geared towards um, managing trauma. Now, some programs will have a whole lot of trauma-related treatment services like EMDR, uh, which is the eye movement uh, desensitization reprocessing. There's uh, other techniques that have been developed, uh, somatic experiencing, mm-hmm. so that um, they go in to address the symptoms of trauma through a side door, uh, so to speak. Um, there are methods uh, of treating uh, certain types of trauma almost using a grief model, you know, with the five stages, and uh, you're creating a narrative uh, of your past experience that you can understand and that helps you heal rather than just dwelling in the old obsessive way on the terrible things that happened. Mm-hmm. It's something that we really haven't, used very much anywhere in mental health, let alone substance abuse. Um, So it's new. Mm -hmm. Um, The Veterans Administration is now doing a fair amount of trauma work in some veterans hospitals, not all of them, with um, combat veterans. Um, But a lot of the folks you see in treatment um, have so much trauma that it's a major uh, obstacle uh, to them getting past the depression, past the anxiety, the PTSD-like symptoms uh, that make it very hard to survive in recovery because your first response if you're an addict is always to run out and chemically address, chemically treat it. And that's, of course, the exact wrong thing to do because every time you do that, you reinforce that same old behavior. Mm-hmm. So there's new help, new methods available now. Therapists are much better trained, much better taught on uh, trauma-informed treatment. And um, it's one of the areas where I think we're probably doing the best. Now, I'm helping some friends of mine just now open a uh, residential facility, a long-term facility, six months or so for women here in New Mexico. Um and it's uh, it'll be trauma informed because so many women have traumatic experiences that are directly factoring into the depressive symptoms that they have. And as you probably know, Anna, women have a lot more uh, depression than men do, or at least they're certainly mm-hmm. overrepresented in the population of depression patients. Mm-hmm. So that becomes a real important adjunct to regular substance abuse treatment. Right. We've got just a couple minutes left, Scott. Thank you so much. You've really enriched uh, our understanding uh, deeply. Where do you see the recovery field heading? What's possible in recovery? If you could dream and, and say in 100 years, what do you think the state of recovery is going to be, given where, where we've come from, where we are, and, and how do you see where we're going? Well, we'll probably be a lot better in some ways. And in other ways, we'll probably have regressed a little bit. That's the pattern that you see where um, we're moving away now from the war paradigm, you know, the war on drugs model, Mm -hmm. the incarceration model. But that means we need to create many more community-based support resources. Mm 
We can't depend on AA and NA to do all the work for us because they're not out in rural areas in numbers sufficient to handle the need. Um, they're very much urban-centered, and uh, we need to devote funds to developing support networks for everybody everywhere. We can't just say, okay, we're not going to lock people up anymore. We have to do something positive to make it easier for them to survive and, and thrive in our communities. Wonderful. Scott, thank you so much uh, for the work that you have done, the work that you are doing. It's just, appreciate you very much. Thanks for your, the richness of your experience and knowledge. And thank you so much for being my guest today and sharing that with us here on Spirit of Recovery. Thank you, ma'am. Blessings to all of you who are listening. Have a wonderful week, and we'll be back on Spirit of Recovery. God bless. Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. is a high cost to playing it safe. You have the power to overcome obstacles in your path and create positive changes in your career and personal life by taking smart risks. Move ahead with faith, confident that whatever the outcome, you can handle it. Don't you deserve more? Gain tools, tips, and insights when you listen to Dare to Live Fully with Helene Lerner and her guests. Thursdays at noon Central Time. Helene is also a television host, prolific author, expert on workplace issues, and founder of WomenWorking.com, one of the premier websites for women. Things may happen around you, Things may happen to you, but the only things that really count are the things that happen in you. This meditative moment from Reverend Eric Butterworth is brought to you by Unity. God is formless, yet takes many forms. What goes around comes around. Chant the name of the Lord and be free. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ever been confused by the variety and apparent contradiction within world religions? Join Reverend Paul John Roach every Tuesday for insight into those principles held in common by all the great religious traditions in world spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions. Using discussions, interviews, humor, insight, and 
practical advice, we will clarify the confusion and reveal simple yet profound truth. Call in with your questions and ideas and help break down the barriers that separate us from one another. That's World Spirituality with Paul John Roach, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. <laughs> 